Welcome to Player Accounts. I'm Spencer Tordoff. I'm not going to do a whole big intro to uh, this episode. I'm really just going to lead in by saying, if your father is still alive, and if you're on even okay terms with him, not even good terms, you might want to go give him a hug right now. You might want to do it afterwards, but you probably should before. And honestly, I'm probably going to do that as soon as I see my dad next. Anyway, here's Dylan McCarthy with his story. I lived in Seattle from 1993 until around 98. So I spent most of my, my childhood in Seattle. It was, it was my mom, my dad, and my sister, and then we also had a family friend living with us. So... In Seattle, um, my mom was working at the time as a travel agent, getting flights and everything for fishermen in Alaska. My dad worked two weeks on and two weeks off at, a, at an oil response team based out of San Francisco. So he would be gone at work for two weeks, and then he'd come back and hang out with us for two weeks, and then that process repeated itself. The way it kind of split up was that my sister was very close with my mom and I was very close with my dad. Um, just because as a kid, my personality just meshed really well with my dad. You know, I was I was a bit of a little shit, and uh, I think my dad kind of thought that that was pretty funny. Um, so, I mean, we, we got along very well. I mean, we did all the father-son stuff. I mean, we played baseball all the time, and he took me to Cub Scouts, and, you know, we do, we did the whole father-son thing um so yeah we were we were definitely pretty close um i don't think my sister was ever as close with him as i was my first starting gaming was i was like around a year old um and one of my my mom's friends uh was a big time gamer um so she gave me her Super Nintendo and a bunch of games because she was moving and was just trying to get rid of a bunch of stuff and thought I would like it. So for my first birthday, I got a Super Nintendo with classics, you know, Super Mario World. I had Mario Paint. Um, just a lot of those really basic, simple games that I uh, played as a kid repeatedly. For as long as I can remember, I've been playing a video game of, of some sort um, all the way back from Super Nintendo and then every gener generation onwards. My mom would love to uh, watch me play Bomberman, and my dad would join me for Tetris sometimes, but I mean, it was it, it was kind of on and off with them. They were never a big part of that initially for the first little while. Um, after, after a couple of years, though, after it had become kind of standard for me to be playing video games, um, my mom and dad would actually start playing Bomberman with me on the Super Nintendo. Um, and there were times where I'd come home from being out at daycare or wherever I was at the time and see them both playing Bomberman on the Super Nintendo by themselves, sitting on the couch, getting really, really into it. We initially moved late 1998, early 1999, um, to this little town, little, little backwater town, middle of nowhere, called Gig Harbor. Um, it has since grown and become very upscale and, you know, rich white suburbia. But, um, at the time there wasn't really a whole lot here. It was just kind of your sleepy little town. So they bought the house here, and, um, 
were were looking to make sure that uh, that I and my sister went to a very good school district, and this was one of the highest rated in the state at the time. Um, so they decided to make the move way over here, going completely from the middle of the city to the outskirts of suburbia. Uh, I didn't. We didn't know anybody here. My family didn't know anybody. We, I mean, nobody here was was known to us. Um, and and we lived here for like a like a solid year, or you know, a couple eight months or something before I went to school. So yeah, there was a very good period of time where I I knew like two. I had like two friends, you know, the neighbor kids, and didn't know anybody else. And when I when I started going to kindergarten in first grade. Um, you know, I, I had my Game Boy on me, I was always talking about video games with, with people, and so that really helped me expand my, uh, my friend circle, because that was such a, a, a basic thing for kids at the time, was, you know, everybody had a game console, you could talk to just about anybody about video games. Was it, uh, you who suggested going to trade in your SNES, was it your dad, and, uh, I guess when was that? That that was actually my cousin's idea. He had traded in his Super Nintendo for an N64. And so when I first heard that he did that, I was just I was entirely on board with the idea that I would just trade in my N6 or my Super Nintendo and all of my games and then be getting an N64 out of that. Um so I went to that idea with my parents and said, like, look, this will cost you pretty much next to nothing. I'm going to go just shove all my games at them. And because I have so many that I can just pretty much straight up trade for an N64 and a couple of games. And, I mean, it won't cost you guys anything. You just have to drive me to the GameStop. Um, so we did go in and I, I attempted to trade it in. And I did, but they told me that I still owed like 40 or $50. Which, I mean, that's a lot of money, especially when you don't have any money. So I had to convince my dad through pleading, and he had seen that we were pretty much already there, and I was ready to do this, and then, you know, had it kind of shot down in front of me. So he decided that he would uh, cover the difference, and that it was just, you know, a little bit of money. I walked out of the Funko Land that day with um, a copy of Toy Story 2 on Nintendo 64 and Mario 64. And then, a, like, a brand spank new Nintendo. And I was extremely happy about it. So my dad was first diagnosed with cancer right around 2000, like, middle, middle of 2000. Prior to that, there had never been any real concerns about cancer. It had kind of been something that was hereditary. Um... But usually on my dad's side, didn't tend to stem out and become a parent until way later in life. My dad was about 40, in his, in his very early 40s when, uh, when the diagnosis came in. So it was something that wasn't unexpected, but we were all surprised that it had happened, you know, 20 years before the rest of his family had gotten it. Initially, they had told us that it had looked, everything looked good that we had caught it very early on and that at this point it was still very much treatable and I mean there was no real cause for concern because we had you know caught it so early in its stages um, that you know chemo was still very much a, a, a viable option 
things slowed down for a little bit, but they but they were still going. He was still at work, and uh, all this while while the initial information was still kind of being uh, figured out. He initially did try and keep everything um, going the way it has. One of his uh, one of his biggest goals was to just you know not let that change him, and to just kind of keep being the the clever smartass that everybody knew him as. That was part of the reason I didn't see it as serious, was because he was acting exactly the same to me for, you know, the first eight months to a year. You know, nothing really looked like it had changed too much with him. So, it, it was it was pretty tricky and difficult for my family for the first couple months, just because we didn't know at all what to expect. You know, this this wasn't something that had happened to any member of our family prior. So we just didn't know what we were about to go through. At the time, it didn't it didn't mean anything that deeply to me. Because it was just not something I had seen before. Um, so I had just pretty much shrugged it off as something that was going to be dealt with. You know, it, as a kid, it was just like, oh, this is a concern and probably won't be that great. But... There's nothing really I can do about this. Like, this is a problem handled uh, for, from my parents. So, I, I just initially was, was you know, a little bit frightened, but generally optimistic that everything was going to work out pretty, pretty well and that my parents would be able to, to solve it. So, as it began to escalate, especially once my dad started going into chemo regularly, we, we always had... A, you know, a family friend or or family from my dad's side at the house, pretty much nonstop for a couple of years. Um, so it was it was very weird for me just to see all of these people cycling through. You know, people that normally I got to see maybe once a year. It, it was definitely just extremely confusing. I had no idea what was what was going on and you know we had I had people buying me presents and you know being really really nice to me all the time and um I I was perfectly okay with it I mean I enjoyed the extra attention but it was definitely very strange for me uh to have just people after you know cycling through the house every every week it it was never really like a like a well people are up here because there's a crisis event happening, you know. Um, so it, it was just not something I had expected, you know, the the, the whole reaction that everybody else had. Uh, I didn't realize that it was kind of at that magnitude at that point. Um, and I, I just never expected anything at that, at that level uh, to be happening in my life. So I mean, as as that went on, I you know I I did start getting cards from, you know, f family friends who had known me when I was a small child and my parents had never spoken to again. And uh, came I came into class one day and found that a bunch of kids had made me cards. Like seriously, I had a stack of forty crudely drawn cards on my desk when I when I got to school and everyone's talking about how sorry they are about all this and I'm just kind of standing there you know very confused like thanks you all made me cards that's kind of cool I I don't know why you'd make me cards but 
thanks, I guess. Um, I, I just saw that everybody was reacting so severely and didn't realize, you know, never tied that together to how actually important this situation might be. As this progressed, we started making frequent visits to the uh, elementary school counselor's office. Um, just to talk about, you know, what was going on in our day-to-day -day lives and all this. And, you know, I th like, I, I, I recognized that my father had cancer and that this was not a good thing. But, you know, it wasn't... I, I didn't realize the full impact. Um, so, I mean, I, I was realizing why we were getting called in there. Um... But, I mean, there would be things where they, they'd be like, oh, you don't have to go to your class for a couple of hours. We'll just sit in here and we'll, we'll just talk and, you know, we'll play with clay or, you know, we'll watch a movie or something. And, you know, my sister was always really chipper, you know, okay, I love movies. Let's watch a Disney movie. And I'm sitting here like, why are we watching movies? Why, why, why are we being occupied here while all the other kids are in the classroom? Like, why do I have to be in here? you know, three days a week for four hours when everyone else can just, you know, live live the normal school school child life, and I couldn't do that. Um, so I there was definitely a, an amount of healthy skepticism uh, going on, kind of, where I realized that something was, was off here and that, you know, this wasn't the way that all the kids at school got treated. Um, so there must be something special or particularly bad going on right now for us to be getting this massive amount of special treatment. So, I mean, we, whenever we had that family over that was, you know, yet constantly cycling out, they were always really nice to us, you know, they bought us presents and, you know, made sure that we were entertained when we weren't at school and, and all this stuff, but it was kind of awkward. I mean, I had, I had the same reaction I did with the counselor where I realized that you know, we were getting all of this special treatment that just suddenly came out of the blue, you know, relatedly right around the time my dad got cancer. Um, so, I mean, they're buying me free things and my dad has cancer, but my logic at the time was just that, you know, well, he's going to get over that. These people are willing to, you know, take me to McDonald's and, and buy me video games. So, I mean, what's the harm in that? I mean, he'll probably be fine in, you know, six months. So... I, I see no issue in this, um, but I, you know, after that continued happening for, you know, like a year, I was like, okay, now something's really going on, We're, we still have people here, dad's still sick, and people are still buying me things and treating me very nicely, um, something, something here isn't meshing, something's out of the ordinary. For, for a kid that is five or six years old, when you're being constantly coddled like that, when you have people watching your back and, you know, telling, oh, you did such a good job, I'm so proud of you. When you have that happening at school, even when you don't really deserve it, and that continues on at home, it can get very socially exhausting. I just got tired of it, about, you know, just being around people who were, you know, obviously being nice to me because my dad had cancer. Um... So, more than anything, video games were a way for me to just shut myself in my room, turn on Mario, and just ignore everybody else. Um, so it, it was a good time for me to just kind of retreat internally and just take my mind off of everything else by, you know, sitting down and playing a video game for two or three hours after school, and nobody would bother me, and I wouldn't bother anybody, and I, I mean, everyone just kind of stayed out of the way, and it, it worked very well for me at the time.
it, it was just a very good way for me to relax and unwind and still at the same time be doing something at least moderately mentally active. While a lot of people find solace in TV and movies, that was never really me as a kid. I, I, I've never watched much TV um, because I preferred playing video games because it can keep my thumbs moving, keep me, you know, working through my nervous energy and at the same time, you know, also keep my wits sharp so I can, you know, keep myself fully entertained, all of my senses amused for, you know, a long period of time. Initially, my dad had just been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, but as time went on, um, and because of his weakened immune system from the chemo and having, you know, a very aggressive form of cancer, um, he started to get other diseases um, that kind of just tacked on. Um, and one of them that I, I, I cannot think of the name and for the life of me cannot find any anything about it. Um, he had a thing that essentially caused his muscles to contract um, at, at very fast um, in a very painful way. So he would get these attacks in his lower back that would just come at random points. You know, he could be sleeping, he could be up walking, he could be in public, wh whatever. Um, and so they'd cause extreme pain. He likened it uh, to um, being sat naked on a grill turned on all the way. Um, they gave him painkillers to, to kind of help numb the pain, but painkillers can only numb so much um, without, you know, completely destroying your ability to do anything. So, he would get these attacks. He, you know, he'd ask us to leave and said that he needed to be alone, and we would know what was going to happen. Um, so we would have to leave the room, um, because he would drop to his knees and just start screaming in pain for 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and so what I used to do when that happened was I would run into my room and I'd just shut the door, make sure the blinds were closed, and I would just pull out my Game Boy. And, you know, I would just sit down in my bed and just kind of put put headphones into my, you know, Game Boy pocket and play Pokemon Yellow for an hour or two hours until everything had passed and was, you know, at least relatively back to normal. Um, once he, Once the chemo started really hitting... It definitely got a lot rougher for him, and he had to, I mean, he couldn't roughhouse anymore or do anything like that, um, just because he was so weak and didn't have the energy for it. He stopped going to work as often, and then eventually just stopped going at all, um, because, I mean, he was on chemo for almost two years. So, I mean, he got a lot thinner, lost a bunch of hair... Just essentially, he was just physically incapable of doing his job. Um, so he was at home or in the hospital 100% of the time. After a while, he didn't even start going out for groceries and everything just because he was so sick. For the last couple months, he was just in the hospital. Like, I mean, they wouldn't let him come home um, because of how sick he was. I mean, we wouldn't saw him every day, but we had to go all the way... It was about a 20-minute drive, half an hour drive. Um, and usually when we were when we were there, it was it was for very brief amount of times. He was usually pretty pretty busy with getting treated or asleep. 
because, I mean, it takes a lot out of a person. That actually continued on for a while, and it, it didn't look good. Um, right around, right around a year and a half, two years in. He definitely looked, uh, really bad. He was about 180 pounds, and he lost about 40 pounds. Um, so he was really gaunt, just really skinny, lost a bunch of hair. He had no color in his face or his body. Um, he was going through that, that muscle disease and also had, um, pneumonia and, and all of these other, you know, diseases and viruses that had stacked on top of him. So it, it was, it was very rough. Was he still him though? He was, you could tell that he was trying, but he was feeling so sick and so tired that it was, I mean, you could just look at him and tell that he was struggling just to kind of, you know, keep up with a conversation. Um, so uh, he was trying his hardest at the time, but I mean, as a kid, it was definitely, definitely noticeable. So like I said, that, that, that went on for a little while. And then, eventually, as a kid, I, I didn't see this, they brought him home to, to like, live in the house. And I, th I thought that that was a very good thing. As a kid, I was like, oh boy, my dad finally gets to come home. He was going to be able to live, you know, live with my mom, and, you know, everything was going to be at least somewhat back to normal. And everyone else was, like, very busy and frantic, and nobody was in uh, any you know, any sort of a good mood. But, I mean, I had my dad coming home. The doctors had told us that he had actually uh, beaten his cancer and that it was very quickly going into remission. Um, but the prognosis still wasn't very good because he had all of these complications from chemo and from all these things. I mean, he was still, like, 50 pounds underweight. He was extremely weak. His legs had, you know, gone through a decent amount of atrophy from being in a hospital bed, you know, 23 hours out of the day. Um, so it, it never looked too good. Um, but he was home. It was a couple of days before he passed. Um... My mom called my sister and I down out of our room, and we had the entire family, like, probably upwards of a dozen to two dozen people sitting in our living room, like, a, a huge amount of people. Um, and we were pretty much told that he was probably not going to be around for that much longer, um, and that, you know, it was something that we needed to pretty much be ready for. And it was only real then, really then, that uh, that I had figured out that they'd pretty much sent him home to die. That they knew that this wasn't going to be something that they were going to be able to fix. And uh, my family couldn't, couldn't afford to keep him in the hospital, you know, fighting these diseases that they probably weren't going to do anything about. And, you know, two years of chemo, my mom's working a job trying to support two kids. And, you know, we just didn't have the money to keep essentially fighting this big endless fight. I had realized that this was an issue and the longer this had been going on for the more kind of doubt I had felt that this that this was not going to, you know, revert back to normal. That this was not going to be something that he just got over and everything continued onward. 
Um, but that was the first the first time that 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 everything kind of clicked into place, and I realized, you know, just how bad this had been and how bad this was kind of going to be. We didn't know when it was going to happen. We just knew that this was a thing that's going to happen at some time. The, the day before he died, we had kind of started talking about what we were going to be doing moving onward. You know, how we were going to be coping with this, how what my sister and I were kind of in for there. Um, and then after we had finished, uh, we were going to... Um, to just go to bed. I mean, it was just another day that we, we had had to kind of deal with. Um, so I, I remember it really clearly. Um, I, I went into t- the bedroom where my dad was in the bed, and, you know, this had been really rough, so I just went up and hugged him and told him, you know, good night, I'm going to go to bed. I'll uh, I'll see you tomorrow. And he just looked at me and said, yeah, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, I love you, buddy. And uh, I just hugged him tight, and I went and laid down, and went to bed, you know, figured I had at least a little bit more time. And when I woke up the next morning, we had all of the family, you know, red-faced and broken out in tears, and my mom was really rough and trying to coordinate it. Um, and we had been told that my father had passed away, and that uh, that I actually had to leave the room because they were moving the body out of the bedroom. I was just in a room with, you know, three dozen sobbing people, and I'm obviously feeling like I've been hit by a truck. Part of the reason was just the fact that it had been dragged on for so long at this point, for, you know, two years, and he was in this rough condition for weeks, that I think made it worse. Um, If it had been something sudden and something, you know, a little bit more unpredictable, in all honesty, I think I think everyone would have handled it a little bit better. It was just rough having to see him in, in that kind of state for weeks before, uh, before we got any closure there. The day that he actually passed, I was told that I could go to school and just hang out in the counselor's office and not have to do any work, not have to talk to anybody. Or I was told that I could stay at home and have a couple of my uncles uh, just take me out. Just, you know, go do something. Keep me amused. And um, they took me out and I was in, you know, still this weird state of shock and denial. That, it, you know, it hadn't really sunk in yet. Um, so I had them go buy me a video game for for my N64. Um and i i got home and i pretty much just said i'll i'll talk to you guys later went into my room shut the door and um just i sat in my room and i just played my n64 just sitting on my bed for hours it, it wasn't so much the game that i was you know trying to play it was just I needed to bury my head in something, and I needed to bury my head in something fast. So I don't even think I still have the game. It was probably some weird third-party movie game that I picked up and was just played that pretty much, you know, nine, ten hours straight, just because I needed to keep myself keep keep myself away from what was really going on here. 
initially it was just something to kind of keep me focused on something else for, you know, an hour or two at a time. And then, you know, after he passed, it was more of just a way to just not have to worry about what was going on, you know, not have to go out and see every member of my family, you know, breaking down in tears and sobbing. It was, I could just shut myself in my room and just belong to a game and not have to worry about anything else, have no other goals, no other objectives than to just play this game. And that's kind of been my go-to method for stress and, you know, having to deal with uncomfortable or difficult situations is, you know, I have a bad day at work, I get I get in an argument or something, and I can just kind of go into my room and, you know, turn on turn on Diablo or or play some watchdogs and and that and that just completely shuts me out from the outside world um for you know 2 hours at a time that I can just totally use to immerse myself in something else you know book reading is good but you don't get a level of interactivity television and movie watching is so passive that I wanted to feel like I actually mattered and had an impact on on something that I felt was at least mildly important. Um, and the easiest way to do that was through video games and uh, and keeping myself amused via some form of interactive medium. I, uh, I still own my N64 with my uh, broken purple see-through controller that I will never let anyone else touch. They can have the Mad Cats controller. Um, and I have a fairly sizable collection of N64 games that are now considered rare or valuable, um, but weren't at the time because I've had them for so many years. Um, that people, I've I've gotten offers from friends, from people looking for for N64s to buy my collection off of me, and um, I will never take anybody up on that offer. I intend to keep that N64 for as long as I can until, you know, if I ever have a kid, that'll get passed on to him. That'll be his first console, his or her first console. But, uh, I, I will not part with that N64, and I would be legitimately upset if anything were to happen to it. You know, purchasing that console was an experience that I shared with him. Um, I still remember us getting home from the store that day, a toddler and a full-grown man, um, trying to figure out how to get the damn thing to work. How to plug the AV cords into the back of our, you know, 14-inch CRT TV. Um, and struggling with it for hours before we finally got it able to work. I mean, I just have so many memories with playing with my with my dad that I will, I will, I will never get rid of it. I will never sell it or, or trade it for anything. Um, I intend on keeping it forever. Player Accounts is produced by me, Spencer Tordoff. I'd like to thank Dylan McCarthy for sitting down with me for an interview. If you'd like to hear more of the show, or submit an idea or other material for a story, playeraccounts.net is our home online. And if you could give us a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Thanks for listening.